We come to Samuel chapter 8, and Israel is in a, another unique situation, as they have been. And they're, they're presented with, with decisions, which we have been seeing them do. And chapter 8 exposes their heart, their maturity and trust in the Lord once again. Uh, they face a very serious kind of would-you-rather decision, and we're going to explore what that looks like, because it has some very serious consequences uh, for the past couple of weeks, we've been in this ark narrative, and we've been following the, the, from a perspective of how Israel's handled the ark, and it is, it's been kind of a debacle. But we saw last week that instead of using that as some sort of weapon, and, and tr- rather than trusting in the Lord, God is merciful. Samuel comes back and reemerges in the story after being kind of uh, uh, away for the past few chapters, and he this a picture of effective leadership. He is speaking God's word. Uh, he's trusting in the Lord. He's leading Israel to God's heart by his faithful heart. And he leads Israel to repentance. He mediates for them. He prays for them. He offers a sacrifice. The Lord wins the battle against the Philistines. And they realize we, we cannot turn to our idols. We cannot turn to self in pride. We must trust Yahweh because Yahweh is the one who saves and we, we see them set up an altar, Samuel does, called Ebenezer, which is the, the Lord, the, the rock of, of help is what we need to look to. It, later, I kind of laughed about the irony of our own Ebenezer, Ebby, leading worship that Sunday, singing Come Thou Fount. Uh, he planned all of this, I think, beforehand. Uh, but today we come to the beginning of a new, uh, sort of a new chapter in the story, kind of a part two. There's this, this transition that we know we're following from the, book, the, the judges to a monarchy, and it's going to trace really three main characters, Samuel, who is the final judge, and then into Saul, the first king, and then to David. You can kind of see a little bit of a visual there. Chapter eight is somewhat of a bridge chapter that is going to shift to this new, new part. And the theme that we've been posed to at the beginning of this, uh, of this series is, is one of leadership. Israel was in a leadership crisis, and they were posed with, with the question, Who's, who are we going to look to to lead us? Who will God's people trust, entrust themselves to? God's provision and his chosen leaders or, or someone else? And will this someone else have a heart for God and faithfully lead God's people? So here we are. If we look at chapter 8, verse 1, it begins with a setting. Uh, the setting of our, our part of our story today. It picks up with Samuel many years after the Battle of Ebenezer. We don't know how long, maybe 30 plus years. Samuel is much older, and he has two sons that are grown adults, and we read this in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, Joel and the name of his second one was Abijah. Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we move through this story this morning. Lord, thank you. Thank you for for positioning our hearts this morning through song, reminding us that you are king, that you are Lord, that you're worthy of our praise, you're worthy of our heart, you're worthy of all of our life and and we thank you that you speak to us through your word to, to help us to orientate our heart again and again to Jesus. And so would you, would you speak to us this morning through your word? Help us to find 
resolve and joy and hope and trust in you. In your name we pray. Amen. So Samuel's old, so he's an old man, and he's got two sons. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, we, we encountered a priest with two sons not too long ago, and, and Samuel appointed, made his sons judges. Now, if you were some of the initial readers of this, this account, you would find this a bit strange. For the back in the book of Judges, judges were appointed by the Lord. Remember those judges in that book are like these rescuers that God would send, these saviors. And the Lord appointed those judges. Judges 2.16 says, The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Gideon was one of those judges, and he, he was aware of this. Some leaders came to Gideon after a big victory, and they say, rule over us, you and your sons and your grandsons also. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord, Yahweh, will rule over you. So there should be a little bit of a concern here, a bit of a flag, that Samuel has appointed his sons as judges. Though there's another use of the word judges that we see in the Old Testament. Moses was commanded to appoint judges or like these justices in every town, and they had judicial ruling responsibility among the people. Um, but I think that this judge is reflective of the book of Judges. judges. And this is peculiar. What, what, why is Samuel maybe relying on just his progeny versus a call from character or maybe God's choosing? In leadership. And then we read in verse 3 Yet his sons, Samuel's sons, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And you just, you just read that and you just kind of hang your head. Like, really? Again? Those judges and officers that God commanded or he raised up or that he commanded through Moses were to hold to standards of justice, not accept brides or pervert justice. They were supposed to hold the standard of God's righteous justice. And here we are again, the situation. Old Samuel, unjust, unfaithful sons. It's not quite like Eli, who was very explicitly called out in his wrong behavior, but, but, but there's a, a parallel here, some sort of pattern, uh, maybe a pattern of trusting in some automatic hereditary appointment seems flawed. I think there's something we need to consider. Just because there is a faithful, good leader, it does not automatically equal sons are going to be good, faithful leaders. It poses a question for our hearts. Maybe it creates a question, maybe a longing. Is there a son that will also be faithful? Will there be a son from a king or a leader that will also follow Yahweh faithfully? So this, this is the scenario, the setting that prompts the elders that come to Samuel. Look at verse 4, and they request something. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways now. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They make a, a very big request here. 
And yet, if we've been following along the story the past seven chapters, specifically the last chapter, Israel has had a constant problem of making requests and not uh, of making requests and not asking the right questions of their very own hearts their motives the reasons that they're asking or what they're asking of or what they are doing if, if chapter 7 is sort of a picture of what is good lamenting their sins confessing their sins turning to the prophet trusting in the lord in prayer we're seeing something different here there's a demand that's coming on their own part so, there is an issue here, though, right? You've got enemies surrounding Israel. I mean, we know what happened with the Philistines just recently. If, if they don't come back, it's going to be somebody else. There's this bad situation that's looking very much like Eli. Samuel's about to keel over. His sons are corrupt and, in, uh, and, and scoundrels, what it seems like, like the priest's sons. This seems like a reasonable request. I, I did have... A, interesting question about the text. I wondered why they said, your sons don't walk in your ways, and they didn't say, they don't walk in our ways. Shouldn't they be the same? But their request is, appoint for us a king who will judge us like all the nations. There's a lot embedded here. And this is, this is met with trouble. This is what verse 6 says, but this thing displeased Samuel. When they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. The point of this passage isn't this, but I I do have a takeaway. When Samuel was displeased, he prayed. (laughs) What a wise sort of pathway. Um, How much do we feel displeased and troubled in soul? And that isn't our first move. But that was Samuel's move. He moved towards the Lord. It was displeasing to him. Or you could, another way to read that is it was evil in his sight. This request was not just displeasing to him, it was evil to him. Why? What what is wrong with this request? Well, for starters, Samuel was judge over them. They they had a judge. Why, Why did they need a king to do that? I mean, had they not forgotten of Samuel's faithful, prophetic leadership just a moment ago? And And remember, at this time, Israel was like this loose collection of tribes. They had no organized military or sort of political structure. And so maybe it seems reasonable. It seems fitting that they would ask for a king because Israel had expectations of a king. We could look back a little bit in uh, Scripture. God made a covenant with Abraham, and he promised him this in Genesis 17. He said, I will make you very fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. So this was an expectation. Kings would, would be somewhere in Israel's history. Further, line, further down the line, a promised descendant would come from the tribe of Judah. In Genesis 49, it's told, And the scepter shall not depart from Judah. This scepter, this picture of rulership, of ruling, of kingship. When Israel was coming into the promised land, God gave Israel this prophetic message in Deuteronomy 17. And we're going to return to this text But he says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possessed it, and you dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you. I mean, this sounds exactly like what's going on. And this is like hundreds of years after this. Is this not what is good and 
expected. Well, the issue will become clear as we go along. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from that day, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. So the problem's coming into focus here. It isn't just not wanting Samuel to be their judge that is the problem, even though he's old and he's got batty sons. But the Lord says, he's not just rejecting you, Samuel. He is, they are rejecting me. And he compares it to what they have been doing since they were rescued out of Egypt. Forsaking the Lord for something other than the Lord. Something else. Something else that they're going to place their trust in. Idols of their hearts. Serving other gods is what the Lord tells them. They think that they're doing good, but they're really placing their trust in something other than God as king. They're placing their trust, their security, their hope into some political savior. Someone else other than the Lord. Commentator Dale Davis says, Their help now has not, was not in the strong name of Yahweh, but in a new form of government. It is not monarchy, but trust in monarchy that is the villain. So it's not just that they, needed a, they wanted a king. It exposed what they were placing their ultimate hope in. A human being, a human king, a trust in some sort of monarchy. That was going to be their help. What did Samuel erect the, the altar or, uh, or the memorial just in chapter 7? The, the Lord, the Ebenezer, he was going to be their rock of help. This is who they were supposed to look to for help. But their hope was now in kingship, not in God the king. And so they're trusting in a human king, and it also exposes another issue in their request, like other nations. It exposes their idolatrous hearts because they wanted something that other nations had. They were looking around, they were comparing themselves to other nations, and there was something out there that they felt like they didn't have, and they wanted it. Their desires. To jump down a little bit in your chapter, verse 20, verse 20 it says that they want someone, they want a king, and they, and they ask, and they want a king that, that would be like other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They didn't want Yahweh to fight their battles. They wanted this, this human king to fight their battles. Did the Lord just not prove his faithfulness in chapter 7 against the Philistines? That this is, he was the one that would protect his people. He was the one that would guard and win their battles in victory. And also, Israel was not supposed to look like other nations. They were supposed to be a different people. Throughout the Old Testament, we hear the Lord saying that they were his treasured possession of all peoples. They were to be a holy nation, a people for himself, separate from other nations, set apart. So they weren't supposed to look like other nations. They were supposed to look very different than other nations. 
other nations that don't know God. But here they are falling into the, the very trap that they've always fallen into since day one, adopting the sins and the idols of the nations around them. This is, this is what is broken in the human heart. Sin and Satan and his temptations make the ways of the world that are contrary to God look very compatible with following God. An allure that, that somehow that looks right. Somehow that looks better. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says, And all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world that looks very different than what God's ways are. And those are the things that were looking alluring and that Israel was putting their trust in. God's people were called to be in the world, but not, not of the world. To look different than the world. Their saviors were, the Savior was supposed to look very different from what the world was putting their trust in. This is the contrast that we should see. And yet, God tells Samuel to allow this erring desire and request to take place, yet he warns them. The king, the king that they desire, there is a warning along with it. Look at verse 9, and this is what takes place. Now then, the Lord says to Samuel, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, there will be, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and the vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. That's a startling list of things. The Lord instructed Samuel to tell them all the ways of the king. In other words, the, the custom and the procedures. This, this word is Hebrew. It actually word is, the, is normally translated judgment. This, is, this will be the judgment, the ruling way of the king is what he's saying. You might have picked up on a repetitive word through this text. Take. Take. Six times. He will take the best. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take your fields. Take your vineyards and your orchards. He will take your tithes. He will take your servants. He will take all that is prized of yours and he's going to stack it all up and he's going to build his power and build his military and it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your life. Take, take, take. 
Samuel warns them that you will get this king, your heart's desire, whom it will be your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. And it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. It gets dark. He actually tells them, when you cry out, and he doesn't actually say who he's, they're going to cry out to, they're going to be crying out, and, and the Lord is not going to answer. I think the clincher is in here, though. That you're going to be slaves. You're going to be slaves. Wouldn't Israel hear this and think, being in slavery is not what we want? The Savior that we know and that we worship, Yahweh, is the one who has written this story in our hearts. The whole Exodus is, is a theme of who we are as a people, of what you have done to deliver us from slavery, from oppressive leaders. He warns them, this is what you want, this is what you're going to get. Commentator teacher Peter Lightheart says this, by the time Samuel was finished, the elders should have realized that Samuel was not talking so much about the judgments that the king would pronounce as much as the judgment that the king would be. In Samuel's telling, the king would become an instrument of divine judgment on Israel for rejecting him as Lord. The rule and the justice that they want would be corrupt. If they didn't want God's rule and God's kingship, then they would get what all the other nations offer, which is horrible, which is oppressive, which is slavery. The Lord warned them, you're turning just like you had always done since you left Egypt to idols, to something other. An idol is just something else other than God that we look to that only God can give us. And you know what? When we, when we give our, our allegiance to an idol, we become slave of that idol. And this is what he's saying. You want to idolize human kings, and they will oppress you by their sin that comes along with human kingship. You want to idolize human politicians who are human and sinful, then you're going to become a slave to that very human politician. I referenced earlier the details around what God spoke earlier in Deuteronomy about kingship. And I, I want to read this. It's a little bit longer, but it's really important that we understand what God said then because it's going to set a trajectory of what is happening here and through the book of Samuel. And this is what God told Israel in Deuteronomy 17. When you, possess, when you come into the land of the Lord your God that he's giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from, from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of, his, of this law, approved by the Levitical priest. 
and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the command either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. We see somewhat prophetic things unfolding here in this moment. It sounds like just what he said, but, but there's, notice there's something absent about what Samuel spoke. We will see here in a moment how Israel responds. But what makes a king right in God's way? A king, one whom the Lord God chooses. God is the one who chooses that king. God is the one that picks, and it's an Israelite, it's your people, it's one of your brothers. And there's warnings that come along with this. They shall not gather weapons and, and of warfare and horses, and they shall not accumulate to themselves wives and treasures like silver and gold, wealth and power, but they must do something. They must write a copy of the law that God was giving. They must carry it with them all, of it to all their days, and they must internalize this law upon their hearts. Loving God's word, under God's word, trusting in the Lord, not exalting himself above his brothers and sisters, but humbly in and among them, a leader, but one of them. Well, let's see what's absent in Samuel's, or the, the, the response of God's people to Samuel's warning. What they should know, what kind of leader they should request. Verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Here's Samuel fulfilling the prophetic role of speaking God's word to the people. We've seen this pattern, this exchange a couple of times now in our passage. The people to Samuel, Samuel to God, God to Samuel, Samuel to the people. And what, what do the people do when they hear these words? I think the question should, have, should be, what should they have done when they've heard these details about what kind of king they were requesting? They should have said, no, uh, no, that, that's not the king we're supposed to have, uh, Samuel. We, we, we want a king that looks different than that. We want a king that doesn't love power and military and taking things from his people, but is humble and loves Yahweh and wants God's word written on his heart. But they don't do that. They don't do that. They say, no, we want that kind of king. They don't listen to Samuel and reject God as king, and they reject his very words from the prophet, therefore rejecting God himself again. And the Lord tells Samuel what seems to be a very strange thing. Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. I mean, does that sound odd to you? Like, why, why would something that's evil in Samuel's eyes and um, rebellious and, and rejection of him in his eyes, why would he permit this? Well, part of this is judgment. 
And part of this is God's grace. He will permit this course of action, a king like other nations, to be given to them, and they're going to suffer the consequence of that, of rejecting God as king. And in that, he would awaken them. He would use all of that process to then unfold his true plan for a righteous king, a one of his choosing, a one that a king that would trust him and walk perfectly in his ways. But for now, they would, they would suffer these, these consequences. We understand this is the way God can work. God permits us to get what our stubborn hearts desire so that in turn, he would use his mercy to awaken us by an act of redemption to truly see what we really, really need. And so by his mercy, he awakens us to that truth. And here he will allow and permit this so Israel would truly see. So in their folly of their request, God permits, permits it. Judgment will come, and yet this is the anticipation. For we know a king is, is promised. But we know a, a, a new, uh, this new kingly human role God would use for his redemptive plans. Remember, remember Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, her song. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his, his anointed, his Messiah. God has plans for a king, but it's going to be his choosing. It's going to be his way. It's going to be the righteous son that he calls. So, will, will this first king be the king? Well, how will we get to this king? Well, our section concludes in, in verse 22, and Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. I can just, I can just imagine Samuel, I don't know what, he was just like, I'm done. I'm done with you. Go home. I, 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 can't, even, I can't even have this conversation anymore. I'm, I'm not even going to think about this solution. I'm so profoundly um, undone by what you're doing. Just, just go to your home. Go home. All I could do is shake his head in that moment. So what kind of king will be chosen? This is the way the chapter concludes. Will, will, will this king fulfill the standards of Deuteronomy 17? Or reflect other nations? Will, will they have a heart for God that is humble, trusting in his word? Or will they be led astray in their pride? The story will unfold. But what's something we could take away from this, this chapter? Well, let's think through kind of what, what's happening, what's happened. A choice is put before the people, kind of would you rather? Would you have the Lord, would you rather have Yahweh as king or something else of your own choosing? They know the goodness of God. There's warnings given for rejecting his goodness. They have a good saving God who's a good king, who's for their best, who, who's loving, who's gracious, who provides, who protects. And, and all they have to do is trust him and to love him and put their hope in him. Choice one. Or hear these clear warnings, knowing how things go, and receive the clear warning of in trouble of putting their hope in oppressive human masters and idols who are not good and who only will lead them into slavery. Why is this choice so hard? Why is this choice so 
difficult, kings or things. And Israel history would unfold and continue to show us that. And history unfolds and it shows us our own hearts. Why is this so hard? Why is this so hard? Well, Samuel chapter 8 just, just unfolds for us the condition of the human heart. This confusing stupidity, outside looking in, it should make us really go to the guard. Our mind should be right there in Genesis. The, the deceptive question posed to Adam and Eve, who lived in God's good kingdom under the benevolent, gracious king, and yet tempted and led astray, believing some lie. Is God really good? Does God really have your best? Is He sufficient in what He does and what He says? And can you just trust His Word? Or is He withholding something from you? Is He lying and cheating you out of something better? And that something better is in another nation or something else. The choice of Adam and Eve's heart is in every human heart. We look to something else. We don't want the Lord to be our creator and our provider and our king and to just trust him. We reject him in being king over us. We, we want to dethrone him and lift ourselves up and the fall what Israel exposes and what is present before us is what looms in every human heart. We, we want to rule. We want to rule and we want to put our trust and hope in something other than king. The king. And what happens when we do that? Just trouble and hell. Why is this so hard? Why is this so hard? Our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We, we, we look around at other things, other, other nations that, to give us peace, other people and things that we just don't feel like we, we don't have enough and we need something else. It, it's the lie of the garden. It's, it's the, the temptation of our heart. It's, it's the brokenness around us that, that the doctrine of a total depravity exposes. Not that everything is as evil as it can be, but it, everything's broken. And it's right here. The psalmist in Psalm 73, there's this, this wonderful confession of this reality. He looked around, he saw wealth and success, what seemed like these, these people who've rejected Yahweh, these pagan people, and they're, they're not suffering, they're, they're, they're abundantly happy and joyful and provided for, and I'm suffering and I have lack, and he became embittered in that. He was brought low, but in the end he realized that he only needed Yahweh. He needed the king. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Sometimes we have to come to a place where we fall on our face for us to be awakened to that reality. Israel would have to face that. But this is the beauty and power of the good news. The good news of the gospel that comes in God's work of salvation. You see, God had always been the good and benevolent king. Always been the good, benevolent king who, who was the giver, not the taker. The giver of life. The giver of good gifts. The giver of his word to lead and to guide. And his word that would give life. 
See, Samuel appointed his sons, and Israel wanted a king to be appointed. And yet this is what the benevolent king God has always done. He, he appoints a good work of salvation. And he appointed his son, as Hebrew tells us, to become an heir of all things, who would sit on a throne, who sits on his throne. And, and what did he do with his power? Well, Jesus, he came for rebels who have perpetually dethroned him as king, who've rejected his kingship. And Jesus comes as a different kind of king, a different kind of king who does not, does not take, but he's the one who gives. The beauty of that is found in places like Mark 10. The Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give, to give his life as a ransom for many. Meaning, meaning Jesus is the king who's the antithesis of the taker, but uses all of his power, all of his glory to come down and empty himself of those riches to become a lowly servant, to go to the cross and die and take upon him the judgment of rebels who've rejected him as king, so that in his grace he would come and he would lift us up to him into his benevolent kingdom to know his grace and his love and his mercy. He softens our hearts with his love and his mercy. His grace, judgment that we deserve, he takes upon himself so that we could know King Jesus and his grace. So, We've all, we've all chosen, chosen foolishly in the sort of would-you-rather questions. And maybe you're here this morning and, and something's looming in your own heart that, that just seems like it, it, just, it was just too much, that choice I made, that rejection that I have made. And God comes to us and he invites us to put our trust in Jesus so that we could say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus came for those, those who made the would-you-rather foolish choices and decisions so that his grace and mercy would come and, and do what his radical reversal of grace does for us. He makes us sons. He makes us daughters. He makes us beloved. And he makes us righteous. Not, not by some perfect choosing on our account, but by the perfect choosing of Jesus Christ for us. And so we look to him. We look to King Jesus, and we, we pray. We pray, Lord, rule our hearts. Rule my thoughts. Because it's in that, that perfect peace, perfect experience of what his king, kingly purposes are, are made. We pray for that for our hearts this morning. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Jesus, you coming to be the perfect, perfect king. You, Jesus, were the one who came and, and you followed the Father's words, perfectly obeyed, perfectly, perfectly fulfilled what that righteous king should look like, and used all of that power to be a servant to give and not take, and you gave yourself, your life for us by taking the judgment that that. Rebels deserve because we've sought to dethrone you and put ourselves there. This is a work of your mercy, a work of your grace. And you, you invite all of us, Lord, here today to, to look to and worship you afresh.
King Jesus. I, I pray for anyone here this morning that that has never been a, a reality for them. And God, would you, would you allow them to turn in faith and place their trust in your Lordship, King Jesus, in your grace. Help us all to do that more and more and be aware and discern those things that we, we're inclined to look to, something else to place our hope and trust in. Uh, prick our heart, Holy Spirit, that we would then be drawn to faith and, and renew our hope and trust in you. All your provision, all your grace, all your goodness you've given us in your Son. Amen.